It's the end of a busy month at Amnesty International and we've got lots to talk about in the podcast, including... You know, sometimes I still behave like I'm in prison. I, you know, for the whole of my adult life, that was my home. Curtis McCarty served 16 years on death row. We'll hear what he and others had to say in a short report from the World Congress Against the Death Penalty, which took place in Geneva. Also in the podcast... We have a story on the most dangerous place in the world to be a woman. What we see in the last year especially is a rise in the return of public acceptance of violence against women uh, to the degree where it was uh, under the Taliban. Finally, we have an interview with Mike Lewis, our military security and police specialist. Before that, it's Amnesty and the News. The Malaysian authorities should take action to end widespread workplace and police abuses of the migrant workers who make up more than 20% of the country's workforce. Amnesty International said in a recent report, many workers are subject to verbal, physical and sexual abuse and are often working in hazardous situations, often against their will, and toil for 12 hours a day or more. After a plan to build 1,600 new Israeli settler homes in East Jerusalem was officially approved, Amnesty International reiterated its call on the Israeli government to cease constructing or expanding illegal settlements in the occupied Palestinian territories. Amnesty International called on the Cuban authorities to revoke laws that restrict freedom of expression, assembly and association and to release all dissidents unfairly detained by the authorities. The call came ahead of the 7th anniversary of the arrest of 75 Cuban dissidents in March 2003. 53 of those arrested continue to be detained. Two Malawian men, Stephen Monjeza and Tawonga Chimbalanga, have been held in prison since the 20th of December 2009, two days after holding an engagement ceremony. After a judge on Monday ruled that they will face trial in April on charges of gross indecency, Amnesty International calls on the Malawian authorities to immediately and unconditionally release the two men who have repeatedly been denied bail. We're in Geneva for the Fourth World Congress Against the Death Penalty. This is a collection of the world's leaders of people who fight the death penalty, coming from Africa, from Asia, from literally every part of the world. This weekend and this week and these days have been very much about talking about strategies, educating ourselves, motivating ourselves, doing all sorts of things to find out how we're going to defeat the death penalty, eradicate it completely from the globe. We've seen this amazing victory where the UN General Assembly voted for a moratorium on executions as a first step towards total abolition. That was a huge victory. We really need to take that from the floor of the United Nations and implement it in the countries where men and women face the death penalty. That's the challenge for us now. We know we've got some very difficult countries. Iran is a challenge. China is a challenge. Some of the US states like Texas and Oklahoma are huge challenges. But we are up for the work, we are motivated, and we are exchanging ideas, supporting each other, and looking at ways forward to defeating the death penalty. That was Amnesty International's death penalty coordinator, Piers Bannister, while contributing to the Fourth World Congress against the death penalty in Geneva. During the conference, we had the opportunity to talk with various ex-death row prisoners, including Curtis McCarty. He served 21 years in prison. 16 of which were on death row for the murder of a woman in Oklahoma City in 1982. He was sentenced based on incorrect forensic evidence and finally exonerated in 2007. 
I wish I could, as I said earlier, that I could say that that I'm happy about my release, but um, the truth is there's uh, there's very little to, to celebrate. In fact, there's nothing to celebrate about what happened. Um, one day I'm on one side of a steel door and the next day I'm on the other side and it didn't change anything about what they did to me and my family and again, the victim and her family. It was, uh, it was uh, horrible, it was uh, unfair treatment of everybody involved. You know, there comes a point where you can't even be mad anymore, where you, the blows that fall from the government don't hurt anymore. You, you get numb to it after a while. They just, they hit you enough and it doesn't hurt anymore. But it was harsh on a day-to-day -day basis, just having to live uh, under such conditions, being locked down, not you know, only because of our sentence and not because of anything that we did. That kind of treatment is reserved for inmates who transgress the rules inside the facility. You go to lockdown where you can't come out, but death row is locked down all the time. So I had to live my whole life like that. You know, sometimes I still behave like I'm in prison. And I, you know, for the whole of my adult life, that was my home. Those were the people that knew me. That was my family and my community. You know, that's where I grew up into a man and matured and, and began to, to educate myself. And... To read more from our recent death penalty report, please go to amnesty.org forward slash death penalty. It's been nearly nine years since the fall of the Taliban. However, violence against women in Afghanistan is still widespread. Women of all ages are enduring physical and sexual abuse in their own homes. They injected me with poison, and I had such a reaction that my hands were numb and I nearly died. There were police reports about all of this. They brought the mullah to say prayers for my passing away, and they even obtained my death certificate. The brutalities I have endured, not just once, but hundreds of times. I have spent half of my life in abuse. I want to kill myself. Sosan is a mother of seven and her ex-husband admits that he, his brother and their 15-year-old son even tried to electrocute her. I tortured her with my son. According to the United Nations, over 87% of all Afghan women suffer from domestic abuse, making Afghanistan one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a female. Weni Kusuma from UNIFEM explains. In Afghanistan, what we see in the last year especially is a rise in the return of public acceptance of violence in, against women uh, to the degree where it was uh, under the Taliban. Amnesty International Afghanistan researcher Horia Mossadiq. First four years of the Karzai's administration, there was huge international support and focus for promoting women's rights in Afghanistan and for supporting women's movement in the country. But unfortunately, 
soon as the insecurity increased and insurgency has increased, uh, the issue of women's rights has automatically dropped from the top of the agenda to the bottom. The Taliban and other insurgent groups have systematically targeted women and their defenders. But unfortunately, the Afghan government has failed to protect and promote women's rights. And in some cases in the past few years, as Maslow's political expediency has actually adopted policy that have attracted international condemnation. For instance, the reintroduction of a government agency for the propagation of virtue and prohibition of vice, a throwback to the Taliban era. Afghan women's rights defenders protested against this bill and other discriminatory measures, but they themselves are under threat from all sides. Many of these women uh, have been killed, uh, they have been uh, threatened, and some fled the country uh, simply because of the uh, threats that they were facing not only from the Taliban but at the same time from other powerful uh, local commanders and gunmen who still rule the Afghanistan. Human rights defender Galali Habib told us of many women's rights abuse cases. When I wrote some articles about the Mujahideen and a Taliban commander, I received threatening calls from a Pakistani number. I informed my friends about it and then I was told to close down my newspaper. Discrimination against women is a cultural problem in Afghanistan made worse by 30 years of fighting and radical ideologies, including most notoriously from the Taliban. But Afghan women's rights defenders are challenging the social norms, they're challenging the government's inaction and obstruction, and they are challenging those who are fighting against change, whether they are Taliban or pro-government warlords. No one can stop freedom and social justice in a society. I don't care if they kill me. There will be hundreds of others who will continue my work. Mrs. Habib's brother and sister both were killed fighting for human rights in Afghanistan. She's still doing work despite the dangers involved and has now launched another newspaper. So, what tools of torture are still available on the international market and how do they often find their way into the wrong hands? This one to Thailand. Oh, okay. Recently, or... Recently to Thailand, or... No. Or a long time ago, or this year, last year? This one. This one? Last year to Thailand. This was an arms dealer at a China arms fair in 2007, confirming that a weapon widely used in torture had been sold to a Thailand source. Such activities have continued despite the 2006 introduction of a Europe-wide law banning the international trade of policing and security equipment designed for torture and ill-treatment. Mike Lewis, our military, security and policing specialist. The problem is that since this regulation was introduced in 2006, not enough has changed. We still see equipment with no other use but for torture or treatment being traded on the policing and security market within the European Union and outside it. And we see, still see member states failing to meet their existing legal obligations under European law to stop this trade. The international market in this kind of equipment is 
staggeringly diverse. It's very opaque and difficult to um, understand its scope or scale. But we uh, have seen an amazing range of devices being um, traded to law enforcement and security forces and misused by them. These are things like metal thumb cuffs that are used in stress positions, spiked batons or sting sticks, um, as, we, as we heard in the last clip. 50,000 volt electric shock stun belts and cuffs and sleeves that are designed to be placed on already de detained prisoners and activated at the touch of a remote button. Well, Amnesty International launched its report two weeks ago at the European Parliament and parliamentarians um, who are members of the, the European Subcommittee on Human Rights um, were clearly horrified at the report's findings and they've now announced that they're initiating um, dialogue with the Commission uh, to try to, to get action on updating and amending the regulation. And if the Commission doesn't act, the Parliament has its own powers to try to move legislation in this area. So that's one of the ways that we're working with European institutions to try to get movement on this issue. And we're also working uh, with uh, amnesty uh, lobbyists and activists and members throughout the European Union to try to pressure their own governments to live up to their obligations. Uh, and that's something that, that members all around the European Union can get involved with. With that, we're going to bring the show to an end. So until the next podcast, you can get all the latest Amnesty International news at amnesty.org or have a look at the videos we post on the YouTube page. Goodbye. Amnesty International.